Well, I'm glad you guys are with us. I want to continue. This is a little further than I thought I would go, but that's pretty typical for for me. But uh, I'm in. A, we're going to do lesson eight, and this is uh, the last study on the false prophets. We've been in the. This will be the third lesson or fourth. I can't remember, but we're on false prophets. Last week, as I looked at chapter two of Second Peter, I sort of get, uh, painted a broad brush of uh, false prophets, and I said that they were ungodly men, and I used the verses in Jude about their ungodly ways, their ungodly deeds, uh, and their ungodly methodologies, and we talked about uh, what ungodliness meant, and it just had hearts that weren't rever- reverential toward God hearts that didn't love God, hearts deceitful, hearts motivated by by things other than Christ and his glory. And so we talked about ungodly leaders and teachers. And then I broke it down and I didn't get very far. But uh, we first all this thing, we looked at the uh, uh, some of the uh, manifestations of their ungodliness, if you will. We looked at their covetousness and we looked at their hearts that were trained in unrighteous covetousness. We talked about what covetousness was. Uh, covetousness was that it's a, it's an insatiable lust for things that we shouldn't want and we shouldn't need, and uh, and in its in its in its close picture with idolatry, of having wrong worship and uh, wrong motivations of the heart, uh, and we talked about uh, that in great detail. Uh, and then we talked about uh, that these they not only manifested themselves by covetousness but they manifested themselves by how they walked and their ungodly lusts. And they, they pointed their congregates and those who were deceived by them, they pointed their congregates to lewdness and licentious ways. And what they did is they, they twisted grace, we talked about. And they took the, 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 uh, the intent of grace, which was to bring restoration and repentance from sin towards God, and they took it as a license to sins. They took Romans 6:14, and they said that we're not under we're not under law, but under grace. So they misinterpreted that, and they said that because we are not under law, that we can have a license to sin. And remember, I closed last week with this, and I hope you remembered it. Uh, liberty. They promised them liberty, but liberty is not a license to sin. Liberty is an ability not to sin. And so uh, these false teachers, through the twisting of grace, said they could live however they wanted to live. Uh, and they twisted the intent of grace. And they said that liberty was the freedom to sin with impunity if you wanted to. And they despised the word of God. And so, uh, but liberty is not the freedom to sin. Liberty is in Christ is the ability and desire not to sin. And uh, so we just sort of ended on that. We spent a lot of time with that topic. Now I want to look at the third manifestation of these uh, of these false teachers. And uh, I'm going to start with verse 10, part C. Not only are they uh, covetous, not only are they they walk in their own flesh, they're uh, fleshy people, sinful, corrupt people. Uh, with with evil hearts, uh, the third thing I want to say is they despise authority. And I have it's on the board. Those of you who are on Zoom can't see it. Uh, but uh, the third manifestation of these false prophets is that they despise authority. And uh, we're looking at verse 10, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, as we look at this third manifestation of these ungodly men. 
verse 10, and especially those who walk according to the flesh, that was point two, in the lust of uncleanliness, and the third point, they despise authority. They are presumptuous. They are self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So we see this. They despise authority. Uh, one of my commentators said this is an habitual attitude of their heart. They think down or they think against something uh, with the result that it is ignored. And the primary reference to this in this text uh, and it's very specific when Jesus, uh, uh, the woes of Matthew 23 to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to Jude and to other places. The primary reference is that these false teachers ignored the lordship of Christ. Remember, we talked about last week uh, that they ignored his that he was Lord. They ignored that he was the savior. They ignored that he was master. And so their primary rebellion is that they ignore the lordship of Christ, that he is not authoritarian in their lives, and they despise his authority, and because they are arrogant and self-willed, they follow their own lusts and opinions, and they take what they think in their emotions uh, as being superior to what Christ our Savior said. So they are, they despise him. They're arrogant, they're self-willed, they're obstinate, means stubborn, they're self-pleasing. Uh, they insist on doing what pleases them. And so that's the uh, manifestation of these uh, false prophets. Uh, they allow nothing to stand in their way of self-gratification. And, uh, and so, and so what, the, so what Peter then does, he describes them, he describes their heart and their arrogance and their stubbornness, and then he gives an example of them, how they are so self-willed and arrogant. And then, so he uses this phrase, and this is a difficult phrase, and there are multiple commentaries on this and multiple explanations on this. I want to give you the two, uh, uh, consensus from most uh, conservative scholars that I read that I sort of agree with, and you can pick, uh, if, you, if you look at this on your own, verse 11. This is an example of their self-willedness, their arrogance. This is an example uh, that they despise authority, and he uses this, uh, this phrase in verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before God, and you think, what in the world does that mean? So to help us, uh, a corollary verse is, in, is going to be in Jude. If you'll turn with me to Jude verse 8, it gives us a little further explanation of what this phrasing means. And then I'm going to give you a consensus from theologians, uh, a conservative consensus. Look at verse 8 of Jude. Uh, likewise, these dreamers, still talking about the false prophets, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, which is we're under this, they're rejecting authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So you put these verses together, and you try to have an understanding of what Peter means as he describes these false prophets, and this is the consensus. 
The consensus is they tremble not at dignitaries. The word dignitaries is the key word. That word literally means glorious ones. Uh, I know there are some versions that say glorious ones. So these false prophets, because they're arrogant and self-willed, they do not, they do not tremble. They revile, they slander, they don't have a conscience when they speak evil of dignitaries. That word uh, can mean two things. MacArthur says in this context that this word dignitary speaks of the fallen angels. And it's remember we talked about the fallen angels a couple of weeks back. So these, are, these are the angels that left their proper domain uh, before the creation of the planet or, or, or shortly thereafter in Genesis chapter 6. They left their proper domain and they inhabited men. And these men uh, had a carnal knowledge of women. And from that, we get the giants of the earth and the violence and one of the reasons why the earth was flooded. So that's that's the fallen angels, those who went with Satan, those who followed him. Uh, scripture says that he drew a third of the angels. So a third of the angels are fallen angels. They followed Satan, his original sin of, of pride and arrogance, uh, didn't want to be submissive to the to the work of God. And uh, went his own way. So this is the angels that MacArthur says. So these people, these arrogant false teachers, they did not even tremble at belittling or reviling or blaspheming angels, even fallen angels, because fallen angels are, are above men. They transcend time and they were created for a specific purpose. So these arrogant men, as an example, don't even uh, have a conscience about slandering God's created beings, the angels, even the fallen angels. And then it says, whereas angels and these angels in this text are the holy angels, the elect angels, God's angels. So it says even God's angels who did not fall, they did not bring a reviling accusation. And then you're thinking, what is he talking about? Then we move to Jude and then we see this uh, scripture and uh, and commentators uh, agree on this, that this is the reviling accusation. Remember Moses. He was to lead the children of Israel into the promised land where Moses sinned. He was presumptuous and prideful, and he hit the rock twice instead of once. Instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock. Remember, God said, because you have failed to glorify me, you're not going to enter into the promised land, but I'm going to let you see it. So in, in Deuteronomy 34, uh, Moses, uh, God tells Moses, get up on Mount Nebo because I'm going to you're going to die there. So Moses goes to Mount Nebo. And if you turn to Deuteronomy 34, uh, we see this brief description of Moses's death. And it is purposeful in its uh, in its uh, lack of specificity. And I'll tell you why in a second. Look at Deuteronomy 34. We have Moses. Uh, the last uh, last book of the law of the Pentateuch, and we see in 34, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, uh, he takes him up to the top of Moab, Matt Nebo, and then in verse 4, the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over there. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. So God buries Moses on Mount Nebo, and that 
place where he is buried is unknown. And the reason we think uh, from Scripture that it, he was he was buried in an unknown area, God, in His sovereign knowledge of men's hearts, knew that men would worship Moses and knew that Moses would become a a a, a, a point of idolatry with the nation of Israel. So He purposefully. Uh, does not disclose Moses's burial spot to prevent idolatry in the future. Now, this we go to Jude, uh, Jude uh, verse nine. Michael is the is the archangel of Israel. He's in Daniel. He's the one who is who is specifically the angel, the guardian angel of the nation of Israel. Verse nine. I let yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You're thinking to yourself, if you're thinking, where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. That This verse is taken from the Assumption of Moses, which is a Jewish apocryphal writing. It is the Holy Spirit did not choose to put the Assumption of Moses in the canon of Scripture, and so, but Jude borrows from it because he's writing to a Jewish audience and he's using this, uh, from the assumption of Moses, he's using this to explain more specifically, according to Jewish tradition, what this phrase means disputing about the body. So in the assumption of Moses, it says that Michael the archangel is, is fighting with the devil about the burial of Moses, obviously in a contention against the idolatry that God presupposed. And so that's what he's talking about. And Michael uh, uh, is to explain the arrogance of these false teachers. He did not dispute with the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And so this all put all this together. And so we see this, the false teachers in their arrogance do not tremble at blasphemy against God's higher beings, the created angels. Uh, whereas uh, even Michael, one of the greatest in the hierarchy of angels, he didn't dispute with the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. So he was humble. He wasn't self-willed and arrogant and slanderous against God's created beings. So if Michael, the archangel, didn't do that to Satan himself, and just said, the Lord rebuke you. So we learn from this that we are not to be self-willed, slanderous, and we are to have a humble heart, not an arrogant, obstinate heart like the false teachers. Does everybody get all that? Any questions? <laughs> Terry's here, and he would be glad to explain it to you. But that's the understanding of these difficult scriptures. I told Terry, you know, Peter says Paul issues things that are very difficult to understand. I have found that Peter is very, very difficult himself and uh, obviously written by the Holy Spirit. But uh, so these false teachers. So that is the preponderance of evidence. That's the consensus of opinion about what this means. Another one that I really like uh, is by Hebert. And he says these glorious ones when he says uh, back to Second uh, Peter, that these false false teachers, uh, that they do not hesitate, they don't tremble at slandering the uh, the dignitaries. He says that glorious ones means the attributes of Christ, and he says that these uh, 
to go along with the fact that they're self-willed speaking against angels, uh, Hebert, whom Terry and Keith really like and have turned me on to, uh, he says that this means that these false teachers, that they do not uh, fear to slander the attributes of the risen Christ. And they make light of the centrality of Christ as the divine solution of sin and holiness. So I really like that one, uh, that these glorious ones refer to the attributes of Christ and that these false teachers made light of the attributes of Christ, particularly Christ's centrality uh, as the solution to sin and holiness. So that dovetails in what they teach of lewdness and, and not ha- and having liberty to sin. And so I think that is very, very helpful. So, uh, 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 if you want to uh, put all that together, hopefully that's been some benefit because this is a difficult text. And then Jude 10 goes on to say they speak evil of things they don't understand. So there are some things that we should humble ourselves and understand that we're not going to have complete understanding of. And we shouldn't, uh, uh, we just shouldn't, Peter says, we shouldn't be, uh, 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 what he, I'm not going to use his verbiage because we shouldn't be ostentationally, ostentationally verbose in our, in our describing things that we do not know about. So, uh, uh, cause we have a limit to what we know. And, uh, so we'll just leave it at that. These false teachers were arrogant and they spoke evil of things they didn't know. And the purpose of what they were doing is to lead people astray because of their ungodly hearts. Now, I think you would be very remiss if you didn't look at how God, uh, through Peter in the Holy, Sp- in the Holy Spirit describes these false teachers. He uses 10 metaphors. Uh, there may be more, but I don't want you to, if you, if you write these things down, uh, I think these are very important. He wouldn't have spent so much time and effort. Uh, he hates false teachers. Uh, Jesus is, is, was most caustic words were against the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 23. And, uh, he hates them, these, their actions and their attitudes because they cause men's hearts to fail and stray away. And, uh, he is zealous for his people and he hates anything that will lead them astray. And so he describes them in various ways. And let's look at the first way. We see verse 12 of 2 Peter. He calls them uh, natural brute beasts. He says, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, they speak evil of things. A natural brute beast is someone who is, uh, is destroyed by the folly of his passions. A brute beast is someone who is, who is controlled by his base instincts. Someone who is, uh, is governed by the lesser instincts of his carnality. That's a long phrase, but that means someone who's governed by his flesh. Someone who, uh, and I even, uh, this is what I personally put down, who, whose hearts uh, so resemble that they do not even, they do not, they're not even recognized as being in God's image because of the way they are, they are lead others astray in their own hearts. They're governed by their base instincts, so they're like natural brute beasts. They do what's instinctual. They do what their flesh tells them to do. And uh, I love what it says, they're made to be caught. And that just speaks of God's sovereignty over them, speaks of God's judgment towards them. And it just, just, just they just run headlong in the folly, 
controlled by their base instincts. So that's the way Peter describes them. They're natural brute beasts. Uh, and the second one and the third one, they go together. And that is would be in chapter uh, 2. Uh, that would be in verse 17, chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse 17. Wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. Now, the Middle East is a drought area, and the most precious commodity is water. So both of these metaphors, wells without water and clouds carried by tempests, bring disillusionment and disappointment to people. These false prophets preach all these things. They appeal to the flesh. They appeal to the base instinct. They appeal to what men want to hear. They gather themselves. They, they, they itch their itchy ears, if you'll let me say that. And so they promise water. They promise refreshment. They promise positivity, if you'll let me use that word. They promise if you go this way, God's going to bless you with this, and you're going to have a four-car garage, and you're going to have an airplane, and you're going to wear a $2,000 suit. They appeal to your flesh, okay? And so they are like wells without water. You see a well in the Middle East, and you go, finally, water. I'm going to live. And you see clouds gathering, and you think, oh, it's going to rain. It's going to be refreshed. But you look into that well, and there's nothing in it. It's dried up. You look into the clouds, and they pass by so fast, and there's no rain. That brings a disillusionment and a discouragement, and it leads people to fall away. When people are promised this, or you name it, claim it, you, by the word of faith, you make your pronouncement, and God is a genie, and if you rub him right, he's going to do what you want him to do. When that doesn't happen, if you've ever seen people who've been led astray by false teachers, you see their disillusionment and the despair, and you see many times they will fall away, and they won't dawn the church again. And I have seen that in my family. I've used this as an example, so if you've heard it, I had an uncle that died, his his wife and his son, very charismatic, and we as a family gathered to pray one time, and Dad and I and Derek, or my brother, were praying for God's will to be done, sovereignty of God, the way we pray, and then, but he, but they were name it, claim it, we're not going to, we don't, he's not going to die, we're claiming his life, uh, and uh, and then after willing to die, he died. Uh, they still, to this day, are against us because we were the problem, because we didn't believe, and it's because we didn't believe it, he died. And so that's how this all fits together, and that's how it looks in real life. And got people shaking their heads. You've been there. You've seen that. It's, it's, it's very disillusioning to people who are who were captured by this, and they appeal to unstable souls. They appeal to people who are have a lack of spiritual depth. They appeal to people that have a that the seed falls on this stony ground and they don't have root in themselves, and so they are discouraged and they fall away. So that's why God hates what they do and what they say, and so they are discouraging. They disillusion uh, people and they bring despair to people, which is the opposite of what a teacher should do. A teacher should edify and build up in Christ, and they have no substance in themselves, so how can they provide substance for anybody else? So they're wells without water. They're clouds carried by a tempest. I love this next one uh, in verse 12 of Jude. Look at uh, Jude 12. This is a fascinating description of them. Jude 12, spots in your love feasts, spots in your love feasts. The word spot has two Greek words, 
two different meanings, two very specific descriptions of these false prophets. Spot in the Greek can mean stain. And so we know that these false prophets are a stain on the righteousness of Christ. Okay. They are the opposite. Remember the church in Ephesians 5, 27 ish, I think 27, maybe 26 says that the body of Christ should be spotless and unblemished. So these prophets, because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but these false teachers are not righteous because they're not clothed in righteousness of Christ and they still have that stain. The Old Testament, the word is blotted out, which means to remove as if it never existed. Uh, so these, in, in contrast to the true church, we are spotless and without blame because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. These false prophets have spots and stains uncovered by righteousness. So that's how he describes them. They have spots. And that other word for this in the Greek is hidden rocks. Uh, hidden rocks, H-I-D-D-E-N. And that means that they, uh, they hide and then when a boat comes up, they crash and wreck the boat. And it's uh, Austin and I just got back from Maine and all these lighthouses. The lighthouses protect the boats and the sailors from land and from the hidden rocks. OK, and so these false prophets, not only are they spots, but they're hidden rocks and they destroy the vessel. And so these false prophets, they're hidden. They're, they're, they masquerade as angel of light. They come across as as is, as you know how they come across, they speak these great swelling words, but literally scripture says they're hidden rocks and they shipwreck, shipwreck a un, uh, people who do not notice them and are gullible and naive. And so scripture says they're spots in the love feast. They take the love feast, which, which, which came from the uh, fellowship of Christians in Acts. They, they fellowship together and had all things in common. And he's saying that they make shipwreck of that and they are blemishes in what should be fellowship with, with believers in Christ. And they take what is designed to be good and they turn it into licentiousness and drunkenness at the Lord's table. As we see, that's what happened in the church of Corinth. So that's an amazing description of these false prophets. Uh, uh, and then if you go to Jude 12 again, they're clouds without water. Uh, it's hope without delivery. It's del- disillusionment. Uh, I like uh, verse 12 of Jude. They are autumn trees without fruit. Uh, reminds me of John the Baptist talking about the Pharisees. It says, if you don't bear fruits into righteousness, you're going to what? Be cut down. So this is what these false prophets are. They, they, they should produce fruit, but they do not because they are not Christ's. They never yield fruit and they're always barren. And so that's a, a the uh, sixth description. Uh, Jude 13, they say that they're raging waves of the sea. You ever seen the sea and it billows and the white and how it vomits and uh, F-O-M-E-N-T, it, uh, of dirt and, and sticks and twigs and trash. That's what these, uh, false prophets, they, they are raging waves of the sea. They, they wreak havoc on the unsuspecting congregates and the, in the flock and they are wolves in sheep's clothing. So scripture describes them as raging waves of the sea. And then, uh, 
Uh, this next one, very descriptive, Jude verse uh, 13. It says that they are, they are, uh, they are wandering stars. Uh, the word for that is they are bright novas, that, that they're falling stars. They shine brightly for a second and they fascinate and we go, ooh, how pretty. And what happens to them in a second? They poof away and they're gone. And so we see their wandering stars. They have a moment of brilliance. They have their, they have their five seconds of fame on TBN or wherever they are. They have huge congregations. But as opposed to those who are godly, remember, uh, in, uh, Hebrews 11, four talks about Abram. He speaks though he's still, though he's dead. Uh, cause he is speaking of the necessity of a blood sacrifice. And as opposed to someone like an Abel and to the, all the other prophets who still speak to us 2000 years after they were written and still minister to us in the church, these wandering stars, who remembers anything, uh, Robert Tilton ever said? You remember him? He was caught with all the, the fake prayer request and the money was gone, but all the prayers were in the dumpster. Whatever happened to him? Do anybody remember a word that man's ever said? He's a wandering star. Remember, you know, Jim Baker, he's still in prison as far as I know. And uh, some, you just go a list of lists of people who, who flame on bright, have a large following, but then they are shown for what they are. And, uh, no one remembers a word they said. And so will happen to the false prophets that we have today. They are popular. They have their congregation. They have their moment of fame. They write their books. They have their million dollar houses and their $2,000 suits. But who remembers a word they say? And that's how God describes these false prophets. And so we should be aware of them. We should listen to their teaching because behind the teaching is the evidence of who they are. Okay. They come in amongst us, but they don't stay with us because they're not of us. And so these false prophets within the church, I'm not talking about politicians. I'm not talking about Hollywood. I'm talking about people within the church who claim to be believers. And the primary role of us as elders is to guard you flock members, guard you sheep from these wolves. And God give us strength to do so. But uh, they're out there and they're prevalent. And God hates their methods, their motivations, and he hates their works. I love this one, uh, Jude 8. They're dreamers. I couldn't have said this better, so I'm going to quote from MacArthur. Uh, a dreamer in Jude 8. I already read that. They're the dreamers. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. A dreamer is someone who speaks in a confused state of soul or abnormal imagination, producing delusions and sensual confusion. These men's minds were numb to the truth of God's word so that they being beguiled and deluded, they fantasize wicked perversions, blind and deaf to reality and truth. So if you took all that down in shorthand, you see the definition of dreamers. But they are men who uh, they just... And then the example of that is, uh, look at Jeremiah 23. If you want to read some scathing op-ed about prophets and what God thinks about them, uh, turn to Jeremiah 23 for some casual reading. Ha ha. Jeremiah 23. 
This is what God thinks about these dreamers, and this is what he calls them. Je- uh, Jeremiah 23. I've run Terry off already. Again. <laughs> Jeremiah 23, verse 25. Speaking of these dreamers, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed. I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceits of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. So it goes on and on about dreamers, false prophets. And just to give you, not to pick on anybody, but remember 1980 when the great Oral Roberts saw the 900-foot Jesus and the Jesus spoke to him in his vision, and the vision told him that he needs to build a bigger cathedral and blah, blah, blah. You remember all that? This is an example of a dreamer in a vision of a 900-foot Jesus in 1980. Just an example, not to pick on anybody, but this is an example of what a dreamer is. Visions of God. The Word of God is not enough. They've got to have new revelation to support their hearts, right? Uh, and then, uh, and then lastly, uh, these false prophets are described as those who speak great <laughs> swelling words. I love this of emptiness. They deceive the weak with high-sounding words that masquerade as scholarship or profound spiritual insight. It's pop psychology. You ever heard them? It's nothing more than pop psychology. Appeals to what you want to hear. Appeals to you can still be in the world, but you can have a form of godliness, right? You can still pretend an allegiance to Christ, but boy, as long as you still got the world's goods, right? So it appeals to that. And it's, it's just great swelling words of emptiness. And I uh, like what MacArthur, they, they offer a religion that they can embrace, but still hold on to their worldliness. And so that's what they say, speak these great swelling words of self-actualization. And all these things that you've arrived you are your own God and oh my gosh all these things that they stroke your ego and it's anti-biblical okay and they take the word of God and they twist it to support their own heart so have I beat on the false prophets enough scripture is very explicit so I wanted to be very real about them and uh And look at verse 18 to 22. We've looked at all these things. We've looked at the metaphors. Now let's look at the tragic deception. Look at verses 18 of 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, we see this. uh, And this is difficult to understand, so hopefully we'll help you. 2 Peter 2, 18, speaking of the false teachers. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. I've talked about that. They allure. That word is, we talked about this last week, is, is, is bait a hook to, to, to catch a fish. So they're going to allure you. They're going to appeal to this, your sense of whom you are and your, and your need for support and acceptance and all of the, all vanities of our mind. 
They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live by error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him he is brought into bondage. For if, after they've escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. For it has happened to them according to the true proverb, which is Proverbs 26, 11, a dog returns to his vomit. And then Peter uses another analogy, a sow having washed goes back and wallows in the mud. So these false prophets, first of all, they appeal to people in their base level. They appeal to people who are unstable souls, who are, who, who are, who are tossed to and fro by various doctrine because they are not stable in the word. They are not sure of what scripture says. They take something they say, they'll twist it and they'll say, uh, all things, they'll say, uh, they'll say whatever they say and they'll, they'll twist the scripture and people will say, aha. But that's not even in the scripture. And I can give you different uh, uh, illustrations of that, but for time's sake, I won't. But they appeal to people on a base level. They appeal to, and this is from uh, Hybert, they appeal to the neophyte converts who are literally trying to make their way escape from paganism. They, they have an emptiness in their souls. They're looking for something. Uh, but they're not yet grounded in truth. They're like the sower that sows the seed on rocky ground or, or ground that's, that's just surrounded by weeds. And because they don't get the proper nutriment, they don't have the proper foundation, they, they, they accept the word scripture says and they delight in it and they're excited about it, but then they fall away because they're not grounded in the truth. And this is, such a sad thing. That's why it's so necessary that as a church, you build people up in the foundation of the word of God. So the goal is so that we are not confused. We are not weeded. We're not surrounded by weeds, but we have a firm foundation, Christ and the word. And we grow in that. And that keeps us from falling away. So that's why it's very necessary to have an in-depth study of scripture, because that is the support system that keeps us from falling away, right? So we are properly understanding the scripture. So, so these false teachers, now these people, you, you, I mean, Peter writes this and he's sorry for them. He is, he's sad for them that they, they hear the word and these false teachers come in and MacArthur says they're trying to escape or, or the, the word literally means they're trying to escape or they're barely escaping. And these are people who are vulnerable because they've had they have high levels of guilt. They have marital trouble. They have worldly trouble. They're suffering from the consequences of sin, and they're looking for answers. And uh, and the best illustration I can give you is I was a chaplain for years in a homeless shelter. And these men who were on drugs and alcohol, they were desperately trying to escape the consequences of their life. They genuinely wanted help. And so... <laughs> They would come to our mission and seek help. 
genuinely desiring for change, not because of their hearts were wicked, but because they wanted to be, they wanted respite from their consequences. They wanted, they wanted to be delivered from their way of life. And so these people are very gullible and we would have every weekend and every day, we would have teachers from various churches and the, what I did was every time they would preach, I would stand up and rebuke them afterwards after they left because they would get in here and say, if you will just believe in God, then God's going to do X, Y, and Z for you. You believe in God. You walk down this aisle. You make a profession of faith. And, and so they promised them things. Well, if you do this, then you're going to get a job and you're going to not be on drugs anymore. And, and your mom and daddy and all the things they did to you 30 years ago is magically going to be restored. And so they promise them all this stuff. Then they tell them all you got to do is love God, but they don't tell them what loving God means. Loving God is obeying God. And so they give them this antinomialism. Oh, you're under grace. It doesn't, grace doesn't matter. It's what you did before doesn't matter. And there's no depth to it. And so it appeals to them and, uh, they're, they're, they're entangled by it. And then, uh, they are, uh, they are discouraged and disillusioned when after they walk down an aisle, they, they say, well, when am I going to get a job, chaplain? And I said, I never said you was going to get a job. And you just have to go back and correct what they were misled to. And that is a sad thing. And they'll give them some book, but I won't say who, and and how you can just uh, 40 days and you can be rescued and all this. Uh, I won't be even, I won't even describe it, but it's just, it, it talks about God in the first sentence and the rest of the book is about man and, and, uh, you, you, you're holding yourself up by your bootstraps and it's just a bunch of, uh, humanism. And so that's what is taught and, and, uh, and it's very sad and tragic. Uh, but people are lonely. People have broken homes. They want to escape and they try to escape and they, and that appeals to them, but there is no fruit there. They move toward the gospel. Scripture says they move toward the gospel, but they reject the Christ of the gospel. And it's uh, and it's uh, in, in scripture says these apostates and these people who are led astray by the apostates because there's no depth of root, because they're truly not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And they are man saved and they are uh, and they believe these lies. What happens is they go back to their old lifestyle. They return to their vomit and they're like pigs that go back into the mud because that's who they are. And the Holy Spirit of God hasn't changed them. And it's tragic and it's sad and it's very descriptive of a lot of the church today in America. It is. And it's sad. There's a worldlyism there uh, that men are deceived, but they're not changed. As, as Sally would say, they're pigs with lipstick, right? They're not regenerated, but they are they are uh, they are trying. They really care. They really try. They want to be changed, but they're led astray and they end up. As, as Jesus said, uh, you travel the whole world to make proselytes of others, but uh, you make them twice the son of the devil as you are. So this false teaching leads them to embitterment. They don't go back to the church. They hate the church. Everybody's a hypocrite in the church. And it's because of the false teaching 
and being led astray by the false teachers. So everybody understand that? Any comments? I've spoken a lot, and uh, I don't see anybody asleep, but anything you want to comment about this, any disagreement or anything you want to add? It's also a description of our times, too. Yes, it is. As you said just now, and I think we need, that's what we need to realize that we, we have to make sure that uh, family members understand this and the other people that we run into and in contact with because we can't assume that all churches are as sound as grace and we should never do that. And we need to be careful how we look at them. We don't want to speak evil of things we don't know. That's we right. don't want to put a stereotypical judgment on them. We want to love them and invite them to truth and a deeper understanding of the word. We don't assume that just because you're a Catholic, that means you're an apostate. We, you can't assume that. There are many Christians that are Catholics, and there are, there are charismatic people that are very sincere, that are true believers, but are just a bit deceived on some things. I told you uh, my next-door neighbor is a very sincere woman, her and her husband. They're assemblies of God, and she came to my house uh, a year or so ago crying. And I said, what's the matter, uh, Vicky?" And she said, well, I just I, I need to witness to you and share with you the gospel because I, I, I've never spoken in tongues. And she said, and she said, I'm very worried about my soul because I've never spoken in tongues. And I hugged her and I said, Vicky, Vicky. I said, there is no prerequisite for being a believer in Christ and speaking in tongues. But there is a, there are sincere people and they want something and they want, you know, they, they want to be according to the, what the false teachers tell them. And then they're so disillusioned and dispirited. And, and so we need to be loving to them and sensitive to them, not looking down our haughty noses at them. But loving them and, uh, and to inviting them to, to truth. Uh, not just what we think truth is, but what truth is. And that's Christ and, and who he is. So, uh, so, uh, thanks for that comment, Dwayne. Anybody else have any comments about these, uh, false teachers and, uh, the, the dangerous effects of their ministry to these people? It's sad. Uh, and I want to close with this. It's from, uh, Thomas Brooks, he was an English Puritan reform preacher in 1608 to 1680. And uh, he wrote a book called uh, Seven Traits of a False Prophet and Teacher. And if you're writing these things down, this is going to sum up all three weeks we've talked about false prophets. It's uh, Thomas Brooks, an English Puritan reformer. And he gave, uh, he wrote a book, and uh, I've never read the book, but the purpose of the book uh, is uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11. And 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, we are not ignorant of his devices. So this book is written so we would be aware of the schemes of the devil. His methods have been the same for 6,000 years. As he first deceived Eve to draw uh, contention and draw a doubt into the to the who God is and what God says and is God trustworthy. And these false prophets bring that to men uh, and they, as they dismotivate them and they demotivate them. Seven traits. Number one, if you're writing these down, if you're not, 
Uh, if you want to take a picture of it in this class, it's up here. Uh, false prophets are people pleasers. They, their primary purpose is to appeal to men's egos, their itchy ears, and tell them what they want to hear. They're men pleasers. And scripture is filled. And, and I like what one when he said, they will teach whoever, whatever, for power, profit, praise, and approval. So they appeal to men. Men want to hear how positivity things, how positive things are, and how God wants this for you, and he wants to bless you, and he wants this for you. But we never mention the sin word because the sin word is negative connotation. We don't want to talk about that because you have enough of that to contend with in the work week. And you're around lost people and it's a little hard to hear about sin. So we don't want to bring up that word. We don't want to bring up that. So we don't let's talk about things that are pleasant Let's bring pizza in, entice everybody, make everybody happy. Let's have a cappuccino bar and all your flavors, and let's just make it pleasant to come and fellowship with the brothers in Christ. We never talk about Christ, but we, you know, we read some, we talk about some books that other people have written about him, blah, 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 and you know the story, men pleasers, lots of verses. But you know a true teacher is going to preach the truth, like Paul did it, and he's not going to care what people think. And he's not in it for a big congregation. He's not in it for right up in, in, uh, in the world religion today or whatever else. But look what Paul says, Galatians 1.10. Look at Galatians. Paul says in, in Galatians 1.10, Do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? No, he does not. He said, because if I please men, then I wouldn't be a slave of God. I wouldn't suffer all my troubles. If I was seeking to please men, then all the things that are happening to me wouldn't happen. Because people, Scripture says that men praise you when you do well for yourself. I mean, when you do this and you got this and you got 20,000 people, and boy, he must be doing something good. And men pat you on the back. But as long as you're a men pleaser... And uh, lots of verses. Uh, uh, look at Jeremiah 5:31. And I got to hurry. I'm long-winded. Jeremiah 5:31. Jeremiah 5:31. This is just sums it all up. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power. And my people, what? Love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? People like to be told how good they are, how important they are, how irreplaceable they are, and God couldn't possibly do without them. And so it's man-centered, man-centered, man-centered. Ha! Huh. False teachers are men-pleasers. False teachers, dis- number two, despise true ministers of the gospel. And they're going to throw dirt, scorn, and reproach on anybody who preaches the truth. Always going to be critical of true pastors, true teachers, true prophets. You go from Genesis to the Revelation, there's always disparagement given to God's people, God's prophets. And they're always hated and belittled. Jeremiah, was he very popular? Thrown in the dungeon. 
Uh, remember what they said about Moses, Dothan, and, 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 and that gang? They said, are you the only one that God can use? So why don't we just, we're all children of God, so why don't we all come up and help you? And, uh, and uh, that wasn't a good idea. And Scripture tells us in, in Numbers 6-3, they despised the true prophet, which was Moses, and they thought other people could usurp him. Other people were gifted. And so why don't we allow them to rule and, and, uh, and God killed them. Okay. That's what he did. So they despise the true prophets. Uh, and that's what's going to happen with false prophets. They're always going to be little, those who are speaking the truth. Number three, they declare their own minds. Everything they say is their own opinion, not based upon scripture or if it's scripture, it's twisted scripture. That fits their methods, their motivations, and it depicts their hearts. So they declare their own minds. I like number four. They obsess over the minutia and they neglect the weightier things of the law. They obsess. Jesus said, you strain in a gnat, but swallow a camel. You, 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 you make your congregants, if you go to a movie or if you wear blue jeans, you are obviously not a spiritual person. Okay? So they swallow, they, they, they emphasize the minutiae. Jesus said, you make us pay tithes of mint and cumin and, and asmin, but you neglect the weightier things of the law and justice. He said, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the first. He's not saying the little things aren't important. He's saying you emphasize the little things because of your your man-made man schemes, and you you do not emphasize the holiness of God, the sufficiency of Christ, etc., etc. Number four. Number five, they cover their dangerous principles with plausible fair speech and pretense. They cover their dangerous principles with fair speeches and pretense. Paul said they masquerade as angels of light. They come across as, oh, what a profound man this is. What, what, astute scholarship and we follow, follow after the guy, but he's really just spouting off gibberish. But they cover, they cover their principles with plausible pretenses. Uh, scripture calls it the leaven of the Pharisees. And in Matthew 16, Jesus three times says, beware of the leaven. Leaven is the evil. They cover it with the, that their, their bones, dead bones are covered in a nice, pretty coffin. Okay. And so these false teachers, they cover their hearts with beautiful speeches and pretenses. And scripture says they're, they're angels masquerading is their devils masquerading as angels of light. Number six, they look at their congregate congregants as merchandise. They manipulate and exploit, as we talked about in, 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 uh, in Peter, to make money off their congregants. They merchandise them. They market them. They sell them a false bill of goods 
for them to make money to sell a book, for power, prestige, for stuff. They beg for money. They say, if you will press this down and give, it will be given into you. They twist the scripture. And it's because they get a fine home and they get a book and they get an airplane and they get this and that. They merchandise their congregants instead of caring for their souls, instead of warning them about the of sin and, and the holiness of God and the need for regeneration. They emphasize the worldly stuff and people say, yeah, I can have it all. I can have the devil and God in one swoop. They don't say that, but that's what they're saying. And then lastly, the seventh thing uh, they seek to win men over to their own opinions and not to the person and work of Christ. And I've already quoted the verse that Jesus told the Pharisees, you will, you will cross the whole world to make one proselyte. And when you've made your proselyte, you make him twice the son of the devil as you are. So they want to win men over and not to the person and work of Christ, but to win them over for popularity to be padded by men, to be on CNN, to be considered a Fox News contributor, but really not to point them to Christ. Have I covered everything? I'm about done. Uh-huh. False teachers. <laughs> God hates what they say. He doesn't hate them. And it's hard to distinguish them for what they do, but God uh, hates what they do. And we should be aware of them, and we should be sympathetic to those who are led astray by them. And the only way that you can that you can combat that is the truth that's in the Word and it's in Christ Jesus. And uh, anybody having comments or questions? And next week uh, we're going to go to something more positive, and that's going to be the promises of Christ. The genuine promises of Christ that are true and amen, as opposed to the false promises of the false prophets. And specifically, we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ and the promises uh, that will be fulfilled in Christ. And, and we're going to see the heart of Christ, that he's not willing that any of his people should perish. And we'll look at that in great detail next week. Any comments?